Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Last year was a tipping point for the cannabis movement. New measures passing in eight states brought the total number of states regulating new marijuana laws to 29. That's more than half. Medical marijuana patients and advocates in the eight states that have passed new measures are abuzz with anticipation for the new laws to take effect. Unfortunately, legislators in a number of states are pushing for delays and changes to voter-initiated marijuana laws. In Arkansas, the voter measure called for implementation in 120 days, but House lawmakers are moving to postpone the deadline by 60 more days. Maine, same thing. A new law will permit adults to possess and grow cannabis as soon as January 30th, but lawmakers have endorsed emergency legislation to delay the retail sales of it. North Dakota, Senate lawmakers unanimously passed emergency legislation to postpone the deadline for that as well. Same thing in Massachusetts. The delays are not the only cause of disappointment for patients and advocates. According to Normal, legislators in Massachusetts are also debating to make additional changes to the law, including raising the proposed retail sales tax, limiting the number of plants adults can grow at home. In Florida, same thing. Health regulators are calling for significant changes to Amendment 2, which passed with 71% of the vote. In Arizona, where Prop 205, the adult use measure, failed to win a majority vote, legislators are hard at work with two measures and processes to limit the scope of existing medical marijuana laws, and at the same time, other measures are being introduced to expand the number of qualifying conditions. The legislative delays and confusion highlight a real and present problem with marijuana law reform. These problems also draw attention to the problem of patients traveling between states. This often includes veterans. 11 states have added PTSD to their list of medical marijuana qualifying conditions. Now, 20 of the 28 states that have programs include PTSD as a qualifying condition. None, however, require the additional burden of proving concurrent conventional treatment on PTSD victims. That is the topic of today's show and something our guests know a lot about. But before we get started, I wanted to reintroduce Dr. Brian Donner, who I mentioned last week will be joining us every week as our resident medical expert to give us our Medical Marijuana Minute update. Welcome, Dr. Donner. What do you have for us today? 
Thanks, Snowden. I wanted to talk about somewhere where I practice clinically in Pennsylvania where medical marijuana or cannabis is relatively new. I get a lot of questions from my patients on a daily basis, but one of the recurring themes that I see is, what should I do if my doctor doesn't believe in medical marijuana? My first response is to explain why the doctors are reluctant to recommend or sometimes even talk about medical cannabis. The first and most obvious reason has to do with the fact that marijuana is still considered a Schedule I controlled substance by the DEA. This means that in their mind, it does not have any medical utility. And even though it's legal in some states, it's still illegal federally. This is troublesome for doctors sometimes who, when they write prescriptions, will fall under their DEA license. They have concern that the DEA could take their license for, quote, writing a prescription for medical marijuana. It's very important to make the distinction between that recommendation or a certification versus actually writing a prescription. The second reason may have to do with the fact that most doctors really are not provided with a base, baseline knowledge about medical marijuana and its effects on the human body. Most medical schools don't teach it, and we do not receive any mandated education as physicians. Understanding the science behind medical cannabis is essential for this industry. Last but not least, marijuana obviously has some social and political baggage. There's some long-standing cultural stigma that is hard to overcome, and especially for those who aren't aware of the emerging science that's available. The best advice I can offer to patients whose doctors see the value of medical marijuana is to present them with some evidence that medical marijuana is safe and effective. Using science as the tool is something that most doctors respond very well to. A great place, for example, to start with this might be PubMeds.gov, which is a national database maintained by the National Institutes of Health. A quick search on their website using the keyword marijuana would produce more than 24,000 different clinical studies and peer-reviewed articles that are available for their review. The best advice I can give to doctors is to become educated about marijuana now before they advise patients against it. As providers, we have an obligation to understand all of the treatment options available to our patients, and this includes medical marijuana. It's only a matter of time before federal law will catch up with patient demand. Doctors who learn about it now will be ahead of the curve when that happens, and this is imperative because their patients expect and need their guidance and input. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Thanks, Snowden. Back to you. Thank you so much. Let's get started. So with all that's going on, I am very excited to introduce our guests. First, Nurse Heather Manis is the president of the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association, a certified cannabis nurse and the nation's longest serving medical director for a New Mexico cannabis dispensary since 2010. And as an in-home psych nurse, there she frequently helps veterans with PTSD get off their harmful pharmaceutical medications, all of which have serious side effects, and replace those with a more holistic treatment protocol with medical cannabis. Thank you, Nurse Heather, for being here. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me on, Snowden. This is such an important topic. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. And you're joined with Ken Sobel, an attorney who serves as the vice president and general counsel of the national nonprofit Grow for Vets. That's an organization that advocates on behalf of veterans safe access to medical cannabis. And you also happen to be representing the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association in the precedent-setting case that's being heard this week in Arizona Court of Appeals. Thanks so much, Ken, for being here. Well, first of all, Snowden, thank you so much for having us. We're very grateful uh, 
And uh, to all of your beautiful listeners out there, we're happy uh, to represent the residents and citizens of the United States and of Arizona in this important cause, not only for our veterans who are returning home injured and wounded from post-traumatic stress disorder and other debilitating conditions, uh, not just them, but the majority of PTSD sufferers who are women and who are victims of either domestic violence or sexual abuse. And these people comprise about one out of 13 of all of the residents in Arizona, which is to say almost 500,000 people suffer from this incurable, essentially incurable disease, not to mention the 600,000 veterans who reside in Arizona. It's like the fifth largest veteran population in the U.S. Those are numbers that we just can't ignore. Tell me a little bit about what's happening with the Court of Appeals right now. Yeah, so the background to that is uh, when Prop 203 was passed, it included a provision that allowed uh, for a rulemaking process to add new debilitating conditions to the ones that were in the initiative itself. And so Nurse Heather uh, bravely formed the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association, and she's submitted uh, approximately 15 petitions. A total of 36 petitions have been submitted to the Arizona Department of Health Services over the last six years since Prop 203 went into effect, and they've denied every single one of them. We wow. presented on behalf of the AZCNA the second PTSD petition. That went through the process, administrative process, which resulted in the department denying adding that condition. But instead of accepting that decision, Nurse Heather went forward uh, with me as their counsel, and we went to a four-and-a-half-day evidentiary hearing, and we proved that not only is cannabis safe and effective, for PTSD is perhaps the safest and most effective. And that was ruled on by a judge, an administrative law judge. The director then had 30 days to either adopt that or reject it. And he instead did a little of both. He accepted it, adopted it, and proved that PTSD is a condition that's debilitating and for which cannabis can successfully be used. But he also added sua sponte, or as we say, on his own accord, without any legal justification, a requirement that a PTSD sufferer, unlike any other condition, cancer, glaucoma, you name it, is required to first go to a doctor and prove that he or she is undergoing, quote, conventional treatment before they can safely access cannabis. And that's what brings us back to Arizona today. Uh, as we took that decision up on appeal, uh, it went to a superior court who initially ruled against us, and I've appealed it now to the Arizona Court of Appeals, Division One here in Maricopa. And the outcome of that will actually dictate what really happens from here, correct? It could. There's still one more court available, and if necessary, we will appeal to the highest court in the state of Arizona, which, of course, is the Supreme Court. Uh, we're hopeful, however, that Court of Appeals We'll understand that there's a very clear, bright line that the director crossed that they simply don't know and understand the purpose. And right. based on all of that, we're hopeful that the appellate court will strike this offensive provision. Basically, in fairness, that all 
sufferers of a debilitating condition, PTSD, like the other listed conditions, they should be able to safely access their uh, physician who would treat them or would tell them that they've diagnosed with PTSD and then be able to get a medical card so they can safely access cannabis. So, Nurse Heather, you treat a lot of veterans, and your experience has been, you know, really successful with cannabis, correct? Well, and I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I treat veterans. I, I um, work with veterans, and because cannabis is such a safe and gentle medication, that's why people say that they self-medicate, right? Because it's really... Um, a medication that you use as needed in the amounts that you need. And so what I try to do is really help veterans and PTSD sufferers understand the endocannabinoid system, understand the idea of um, endocannabinoid deficiency that is being proven by science, and to know that this is, this is going on with PTSD and that by supplementing their system with cannabis, this gentle plant, that they can relieve some of their symptoms. And so I, I do work with veterans and, and PTSD patients. I'm a, I'm a psych nurse, so I work with a lot of different patients. But yes, I've seen such amazing results from cannabis therapeutics. And in particular, a lot of our PTSD patients prefer to inhale it, vaporize or smoke it, because that way they get all of the goodness from the plant. Um, some patients prefer to eat it, but there's so many different methods of administration that patients can use that sometimes it's nice to have a, a nurse who understands these things kind of guide you through. Um, and, and it's just amazing and so heartwarming for me to see patients be able to take control of this issue that they have with being triggered by their PTSD symptoms. And a matter of lighting a joint and sitting down for 10 minutes can literally save a patient's life who is um, suicidal. That's part of what happens with post-traumatic stress disorder. We hear the term all the time, uh, 22 too many, uh, that 22 veterans commit suicide every day, every day. And that is such an astonishing figure. Today, 22 veterans will commit suicide. And if I can roll a joint and stick it in their mouth and have them puff, that to me is palliative, it's therapeutic, it's loving, it's compassionate, and it literally works within 10 minutes that they, they change their mind. Those things that are so horrible for them, those thoughts that are racing, they actually become more compassionate on themselves. They don't want to take their lives. They, they see that there's other things that they need to do and that they can do. So it's an empowerment, a patient empowerment uh, tool for nurses. And I'm so grateful to this plant and all of the health and wellness that it provides for patients. Yeah. And so few medical professionals that work with veterans actually understand cannabis, which is a, a very valid point that Dr. Donner brought up earlier. And the problem is education. And I'm sure you run into this all the time, speaking with veterans who have spoken with their doctors who say, oh, they're not really in favor of this. You know, it, it, it must be difficult for them because they've been trained to basically listen to the people who um, advise them in the military. 
What's your experience yeah. with that? Absolutely. I mean, they, they follow orders and they do what they're told. And when a, when a VA doctor gives them a bag full of pharmaceuticals, they take them. And so that's what we find is that there are many, many of our veterans are being over-medicated. Um, and, and they don't need to be because what that does is reduce their quality of life. And what cannabis does is it increases their quality of life. And quite frankly, you know, the poisons and the chemicals from the pharmaceuticals, they, even the uh, SSRIs, such as Zoloft, which is a, a medication that's used regularly for PTSD, that medication itself has side effects. And one of those side effects is suicidal tendencies or su suicidal ideation. And so the last thing, in my opinion, we want to be giving a patient who is already um, facing those challenges, the last thing we want to do is add a medicine, in air quotes, that's adding to those symptoms. So uh, it, it's, it's hard, and we do find that there is some issue. I know that there's some legal uh, memos that have come out regarding uh, veterans not losing their, their services because they're cannabis patients. It didn't used to always be that way. Uh, some of the VA doctors, when I first started this way, literally told their patients, I can't prescribe you any of your pharmaceutical medications if you're using this cannabis. And I really what sparks this whole thing is that I had a patient who was a veteran and he was 28 years old and he was facing this very struggle of getting the care that he needed from the VA and then being opposed to his cannabis use. And cannabis was helping him and he had seizures and traumatic brain injury and, and PTSD. And this patient of mine took his life. And it changed my life because I realized at that point how valuable cannabis was. And he only took his life after he had lost his card. He, he had traumatic brain injury, hard time remembering, and his card had lapsed. And he came to the shop to get some medicine. And um, I said, your, Tyler, your card's expired. I can't do this. And I was faced with a very real issue as a healthcare provider. You know, I know that he needs it. I could not legally provide it. And it was less than two weeks later when his mom called and said that he had taken his life. And I know because he'd been my cannabis patient for three years, he was very specific in the strains that he needed. And I kept them in stock for him. Um, and when he lost access, he lost his life. Oh, that is heartbreaking. That it, but it, but on, the, on the good side, it was that very incident that motivated me when I came to Arizona. And I said, what do you mean post-traumatic stress disorder isn't on the list? Um, that this, I know that this works. I've been seeing it in New Mexico this whole time. And so Ken, with his great, he's a wonderful attorney. He has a huge heart. He's very compassionate. And he said, well, let's, let's take up this fight and do it. I had no idea we would still be fighting this. I guess we're into four years now um, that we're trying to get this access safe and easily for our PTSD sufferers in Arizona. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that this, this whole issue transfers also to those who are injured badly enough that they need to be in group homes or, you know, some kind of institutional setting. 
because I've gone through this with my father too, who is also a veteran and haunted by memories of Vietnam his entire adult life, basically. And you know, we had we had trouble finding a way to medicate him while he was in an institution recovering from you know a four week coma, and the drugs that they were giving him, the benzodiazepines and the antipsychotics, were killing him literally. And well, and that's what we're that's what we're really trying to do here, Snowden. We're, you you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that education is the key. That you know, knowledge is power, and that's how we're going to fight this stigma. It, it's really just a fact of stigma and people not knowing the science, particularly healthcare professionals, not recognizing that there's a lot of science out there on the endocannabinoid system, on cannabinoid therapeutics, on the benefits of cannabis. Our government even holds a patent on cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. And that, to every healthcare provider, you know that that means preventative medicine. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it just, that's what, why I do what I do. I'm, I'm an educator. I go around the country and try to educate as many healthcare professionals as possible. That makes sense that you're doing that, and um, it's so very necessary. And I know that some studies are coming out. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Susan Sicily uh, last week, and she's working on a groundbreaking study right now. And I'm hoping that as some of these studies come out, that opinions about medical marijuana will start to uh, catch up with the science. Is doctors yeah, but that's really that really you know and and that's really unnecessary i mean it's the, the the falsehood is that there's not enough information even if we're debating whether it's evidence-based or not which is what the department tries to throw up there's actually more peer-reviewed scientific and medical journal articles describing the benefits and the issues relating to cannabis than there is of any other drug uh, even more than aspirin. And so the threshold is to what extent, because you're usually engaged in a risk-benefit analysis, when you do that, medical cannabis is the clear winner because in 5,000 years of recorded history, we have not a single reported overdose death. Whereas with a substance like aspirin, which is available at the drugstore or the, the supermarket, you have more than 300 deaths every year from an overdose. So we're talking about the safest plant that there is, and it is just that. And we're talking about uh, survey groups, for example, that they do in Europe, uh, where they survey patients with neuropathic pain. Um, those describe 94% relief from cannabis. So I, I, I try to take the view that uh, is not really necessary. I mean, every research article Snowden ends with we need more research. But the reality is that in terms of the safe access to this medicine, I believe from all the research I've done that it will be a therapeutic or palliative benefit for 98.5% of all medical conditions, illnesses, and diseases. Yeah. And that's yeah. from the research, the research that we have right now. As Dr. Donner said in the opening, 24,000 search results come up on PubMed when you type in the keyword marijuana. And that's the, the clearinghouse of so many of the medical studies, the, the clinical studies that have been done. And it is astonishing to me that in politics particularly, you hear, well, we can't make any decisions on this until we have more information. 
which you know really as you say is is not the case well, who do you think in arizona was the first argument listed when prop 203 was presented in the ballot pamphlet who do you think made the first argument against it the department of health yeah. services will humble you know and right. and he's the first one now people being who they are with egos that they have they take a position and don't want to change it and that's what you see in a state like arizona where the political authority and power opposed it they opposed it uh vehemently as they did recently with the adult legal and based on those positions that they took they're uninterested disinterested uh not intellectually curious about whether or not cannabis works and whether or not they need as government officials to take up for the citizens in arizona who voted in favor of it and passed it and so they have a person who's charged the dhs who's in charge of advising all of their doctors in the state about medical cannabis who knows nothing about medical cannabis who in the last evidentiary hearing we had admitted that she's no expert in cannabis therapeutics and couldn't identify any of the cannabinoids beyond THC and CBD. Yeah. That's what you, this is what you end up with. And it's almost astonishing that you would think that doctors who are highly trained wouldn't at least be intellectually curious enough to spend even a few minutes or a few hours to simply read some of the research that's out there. Well, again, it's breaking through the stigma, but also I often wonder, and I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but when it comes to cannabis, you know, there's no denying that there's been sort of a grand scheme that's been taking place for the last 80 years to oppress um, knowledge about cannabis. But in Arizona particularly, I mean, we have a real problem with money that's coming in that's supposed to support the program you know, coming in from the licensing and taxes, being spent on on fighting uh, the use yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, last year they collected $11 million from the patients who signed up to get patient cards or renewals, and they collected another million three from the dispensaries and other parts of the industry that pay various fees and and so forth or penalties when they do something wrong. So they collected over $12 million. They didn't spend anywhere near that, but part of what they did spend is to hire an expensive law firm on a no-bid contract to fight the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association who are trying to protect the rights of patients to safely access the medicine, and there's zero accountability. Yeah, and not to mention the other groups, too, that they're fighting against and, um, you know, spending all of these resources in trying to limit the law instead of, you know, just coming to a point of acceptance about it. You know, and there are a lot of very powerful lobby groups, too, who are paying to keep these people in office, paying campaign contributions and um propaganda campaigns as well like for instance the alcohol lobby is very strong and they've put a lot of money in to um defending the anti-marijuana position and i really wonder just how many of the legislators and and people like uh the prosecutor the county prosecutors um sheila polk is one 
who's a very vocal advocate and the money that they're receiving goes into these campaigns that are basically telling lies about marijuana and well you know the organized the, the the medical marijuana i mean karma's a bitch as they say uh but the organized dispensaries and industry put all of their eggs in the basket of trying to get adult legal that would then have given them almost a monopoly on being able to obtain those licenses as opposed to supporting the Arizona Cannabis Nurses Association to expand the list of debilitating conditions that truly goes back into the medical aspects of cannabis so you know um, much as I would have hoped that Arizona would pass that like like California did in the other states uh, the reality is that there's a lot more work to be done, like what we're doing here, uh, trying to get this PTSD issue resolved, trying to add conditions like Parkinson's disease and Huntington's disease, which we recently went on cases on those. Um, and then hopefully soon, sooner than later, Arizona will pass it's over the counter. I say it's over the counter as opposed to adult legal, because all cannabis is medical cannabis, and everyone who uses it use it for a medical reason, whether they know it or not. I, I think a lot of people um, who do use it recreationally, and I think evidence has shown this too, uh, they're using it. Um, your bodies kind of know what you need to relax. And, and people who are using it recreationally, it seems that, yeah, you're right. They don't know they're using it medicinally. Well, I, I always say it's like, uh, you know, I like steak. So that's uh, something that I like. And so when I go out and I'm having ordering a steak dinner, and part of it is me saying, yeah, I think I like this. I like this in my head. But your body said, I need protein, or I need that too. And it's, it's subliminal. I mean, it's not something you're actually thinking about. But I, my contention is, like I said, that people who even identify as a recreational user are using it probably for stress. Uh, because it is probably the most effective stress mediator of any, any substance on the planet. So can I, I understand that you need to go because you have, you have to get prepared for, for the appellate court uh, hearing today, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, and um, I look forward to seeing you a little bit later and learning more about this and finding out the outcome. Thank you so much, Snowden. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you so much for what you're doing out there getting important information to your li your beautiful listeners um it, it's it's really a matter of pride uh that i represent the arizona cannabis nurses association which is an outstanding organization i encourage people to check out their website to support them financially if they can um we're opposing we're being opposed by a government funded law firm uh, essentially uh, that has received hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight against us um, and we survive only on donations so to the extent that your listeners can log on uh, and help out and also for the veterans uh, my dad was one uh, who uh, need to have safe access immediate access to cannabis and again thank you so much for having me uh, and thank you for the work that you do. I mean, it's, it's just incredible and it's so necessary. And I'll definitely put information about you and about, um, you know, how people can learn what you're doing. I'll put that on our website on this podcast post. And, um, you know, hopefully listeners in, you know, all the stations that are tuning in right now will also check you out. So thanks again so much for being here. And Nurse Heather, please stay on and, um, 
meanwhile, good luck today. Ken. Thank you, and Semper Fi. Yeah, so let's let's get back to this, um, Nurse Heather, because I'm so grateful for all of the work that you're doing, and I'm sure that a lot of patients feel the same way because we're so incredibly passionate about this issue. You know, as are we. I mean, it's it's phenomenal when you start looking at the science that's coming out about the deficiencies, as you mentioned, that are actually causing autoimmune responses, um, not in a good way, and to have a deficiency of the endocannabinoid system. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It is. And you know, when I went to nursing school, I thought I got a great education. I had wonderful teachers and I learned a lot. Um, the one thing I didn't learn, Snowden, I did not learn about an entire system. And that system is the endocannabinoid system. And what I've learned now is that the endocannabinoid system is the balancing system or the homeostasis system for the entire body. It brings balance between all of the other systems in our body. And when I learned this, I went, aha, it all makes sense now. And as we learn from the, the research that's been going on about this endocannabinoid deficiency, we learned that our bodies produce endocannabinoids, that we have receptors, that the endocannabinoid system is one of the largest receptor signaling systems in our body, and that we produce endocannabinoids that just naturally, we do it every day, we just produce them, and when someone experiences trauma, it shakes that balancing system. It rocks them at their core. And many times their body will stop producing the endocannabinoids that are needed to maintain homeostasis, balance, and health. And so it makes sense because in medicine, when there is a deficiency of anything, whether it's an iron deficiency or a vitamin D deficiency or vitamin B12 deficiency, we supplement the body. We supplement that. And it's done all the time. And we find that cannabis is a perfect supplement for endocannabinoid deficiency. And so I really like your listeners to, um, I want to spark their interest to go out and go to pubmed.gov and Google endocannabinoid deficiency and, or endocannabinoid system or endocannabinoid deficiency and start looking at this stuff. It's really fascinating. And um, we hear that there's not enough science or research out there, but I guarantee you if you start looking up those things, you're going to be inundated with the research that's happening and you're going to be fascinated. So um, my goal is to really get us educated as medical professionals. The statistic is that the endocannabinoid system is only mentioned, mentioned, not gone into detail, but only mentioned in 13% of medical schools. And that's today. So we're, we're pumping out doctors and nurses that don't understand that we even have this system. And we've had science showing this system for, for several decades now. So, um, I, I want to stimulate the, the curiosity of your listeners and have them go out there and research this. Take it to your doctor. Share it with a nurse. Ask them if they've heard about the endocannabinoid system because the more that we know, the better we can care for our, our bodies and our patients. 
Yeah, and also the more we can uh, be assured that they're not going to deny patients their will to use cannabis as opposed to some of the pharmaceuticals that they're getting. There's something else that I found really interesting. And when we're talking about the deficiencies, there are a number of food sources that actually have some uh, levels of cannabinoid in them. Absolutely. Like, for instance, echinacea is one and you know echinacea flaxseed pure cacao chocolate that's why yeah. this is the most fascinating because the word and one of the endocannabinoids that we produce in our body is called anandamide and it's interesting because the sanskrit uh word ananda actually means bliss so we cruise around creating these bliss molecules all the time and you hear about chocoholics or people that love chocolate um, because in chocolate it also stimulates our endocannabinoid system similar to anandamide it triggers the same receptors and so it's very interesting you're right on there are so many other plants and and food sources that we can use to tr- to stimulate our systems support our endocannabinoid system and it really just comes down to a healthy lifestyle and coming back to nature, the way nature intended. Um, so I, I see the ways of the past becoming the ways of our future, mingled in there with all of this great science and research. If I was in a car accident, take me to the ER. There is a time and place for that conventional medicine, and it's wonderful when you need it. But we don't need to be on chemicals in the form of pharmaceuticals all the time. Hippocrates said, let thy food be thy medicine, and thy medicine be thy food. And we really need to come back. Cannabis is a food. I juice cannabis. Cannabis leaves are non-psychoactive. This might be interesting for your listeners, and stop me if I go on. But um, it's interesting to to know that raw cannabis, fresh, growing out of the ground, clip it off, you can juice it or eat it. And it is non-psychoactive, Snowden. It has THC acid, which is non-psychoactive. And cannabis does not become psychoactive until it has been heated in some way to create the THC molecule. And whether you're lighting, your, you're lighting it with a lighter or you're baking your cookies in the oven, if the cannabis has not been heated, it, it is not psychoactive. And so when we come back to the idea of food and supplements, Um, I find great value in these non-psychoactive components of the plant and these non-psychoactive forms in which we can utilize this plant. That would be THCA that you're referring to, correct? It has so many neat parts to it. It has stuff that we're learning about and we know about. It has stuff we don't know about. We're learning not only the cannabinoids are really important, but also the terpenes. Um, terpenes are the, the, compo- the component of the plant that gives it a smell. So when we peel an orange, for example, you smell the smell of an orange. All of your listeners know what that smells like. But do you know that the terpene limonene is the terpene that you're smelling? Um, and it is predominantly that, that terpene. Cannabis is super cool because it has lots of different terpenes in it. That's why when you smell a strain or a variety of cannabis, they pretty much all smell a little bit different. That's why they have a little bit of a different effect. Um, 
some of them have higher levels of a terpene called linalool. Linalool is found heavily in lavender, and lavender is used to relax and calm. Interestingly enough, when a, a variety of cannabis has higher levels of linalool, it's a great calming and relaxing and many times a sleep aid. Um, so we have so much we can learn even just from the cannabinoids, THC, CBD, CBN, CBC, and, and these terpenes, um, linalool, beta-caryophylline, um, limonene, pinene, all, all of these amazing components. And the cannabis plant also has flavonoids. So the flavonoids are the taste. And it's cool that cannabis actually has, it's called canflavin, one and two, and it's cannabis is the only plant that these flavonoids are found in and that they that they know of. And so it's so interesting as we start to learn and pull the part of pull the plant apart, see all of the different components and how the entourage effect works. Because in in medicine and pharmaceuticals, what we do with nature, just like Ken was talking about aspirin, aspirin came from the willow bark. And so they found out that willow bark helped with this with pain management. And so they extracted that component of the willow bark and they patented it and recreated it chemically. We call that aspirin. Um, they've done the same thing with cannabis and they've extracted THC alone. And that's called Miranol or Dronabinol. It's a pharmaceutical medication that is patented and pharmaceutical companies make money on. Um, but what they can't make money on is the entourage effect of the whole plant. And that's the exciting part, is really seeing how all of these different components I just spoke of work together within the body, within the individual. Because each person will have a preference of smells, of flavors, of, of feeling when they're using the certain medicines. And so each person is so unique. Uh, we say in... in when patients say, well, how can I tell which, which uh, flower I should get? We tell them, your nose knows. Your nose knows. Smell it. If it resonates with you, it's great. If it doesn't resonate, if it gives you a funny feeling in your mouth or you think it stinks, that's not really the one for you. And so it's quite amazing how our bodies um, just know what we need. And when we listen to our bodies and we give it what it needs, we are healthier and more empowered as, as individuals, as families, as communities. You know, I find that really fascinating. I'll just share a personal thing. Um, I've been on, on a thyroid medicine protocol since I was 10 years old, and I, my body just doesn't produce it, and so I need a supplement. It wasn't until about 15 years ago that I, I met with um, a doctor of osteopathy who was very big into Eastern philosophy medicine, and he said, you know, your body's going to tell you what type of thyroid hormone you need, and it's going to tell you what your dosage is. And I just looked at him physically. I just didn't understand how that could be possible. And basically, he gave me a series of muscle testing, and sure enough, came up with a, a formula and a dose for me that's all natural, no longer synthetic. And it worked wonders. And I imagine that we have so much um, 
knowledge and intuition inside of us to be able to choose the right medicine. So what you're saying completely resonates with me. And I think that anyone who has found holistic medicine fascinating will completely relate to what you're saying. And I think it's important for people to explore that by just listening to their bodies. And you don't have to go extreme. You just implement it into your life where it's comfortable. And when you talk about holistic medicine, in Western medicine, they're really looking at a set of, it's, they're going by the scientific method. What do we see is the issue and, you know, how do we fix that physically or mentally? But the aspect that they miss and what holistic medicine captures is the spiritual aspect, the fact that we are individuals. That there is something to the spirit of a person. I've seen it because I, I'm a home health nurse, or I was, and I would go in, and you knew when a patient had spirit, they were going to be around a while. When you realized that a patient's spirit was beaten down, you knew they weren't going to be with you much longer. And so just from a holistic perspective, with the attitude, the way people feel about themselves, their daily practices, their lifestyle, um, in holistic medicine, we look at all aspects of the human, not just the mind, not just the body, but also the spiritual aspect. And as you were just alluding to, we know evolution has given us these tools to be able to know what is healthy and good for us and what isn't. I mean, that's what keeps us alive. And so um, we really need to come back to that and start pulling from that ancient wisdom. And I'll give a little plug here. I'm going to be with Nurse Jewel V and Lisa LaFever on a panel at the Women Grow Leadership Summit next week. And we're doing a panel entitled um, Ancient Wisdom and Modern Healing. And we're going to be touching on all of these things that we just discussed today. Um, you know, the, the whole gamut of where was medicine? How did medicine come to be? And how can we start bridging that gap between what medicine is today to start making us a healthier community? And to start coming off of some of the, the highly toxic pharmaceuticals that our bodies are rejecting and are creating these, these unbearable side effects as well. Yes. I mean, it's, it's amazing when patients start reducing their use of pharmaceuticals and we always do it safely. I, I would never, you know, titrate a patient off of their medicine without their physician there. I always encourage the patient to discuss this with their physician and to do it safely. But it's amazing. You know, we do see that when a patient starts using cannabis, if they're on a blood pressure medication, for instance, that's usually one of the first medications that come off because cannabis has such a powerful impact on lowering blood pressure that a lot of times patients, if they're combining the two, they'll get a little bit dizzy because their blood pressure is now too low. And because cannabis is so powerful and strong on its own, many patients don't need that blood pressure medication after they've started using cannabis therapeutics. We've seen the same thing in the psych world that when patients start using cannabis, maybe they'll not use as many of their, their, um, Ativan or, or Valium or some of these benzos, they can reduce some of their benzos. Some patients uh, reduce very quickly um, their Zoloft yeah. and Paxil, those will start coming off. And so that's kind of a, a, a good thing when you see people getting better. And that was 
you know, that was always my goal. I, I was home health and I didn't want to keep them on service forever. I wanted to help them get better and get on with their lives. And I will tell you, Snowden, that one of the biggest medications that we were able to reduce, and this is probably the most important, was the opiates. And yeah. you have a patient, I had patients that actually had to give themselves an injection in the stomach every couple of days to be able to use the restroom because they had such severe injuries and pain that they've been on opiates for a long, long time and it has completely ruined their system. And when we started getting those patients onto cannabis, they could, it was managing their pain. And so they could reduce the amount of opiates. Once they did that, their heads started getting clearer. They were able to use the bathroom a little easier. I wasn't seeing them for, you know, chronic uh, pneumonia or bronchitis because now their respiratory system wasn't depressed all the time. And many, you know, all of the patients that I worked with, with cannabis who were on opiates, all of them were able to reduce their medications by about half. And many of my patients actually got off of, off of them all the way. They got off of opiates completely. And those patients I discharged. And I have to tell you, that's one thing that really fired me up was when I realized that pharmaceuticals were keeping people sick. They were keeping them homebound. They, they never felt good because they were on so many pharmaceuticals that now they were homebound and they couldn't get out there and live a quality of life. So for me, that was the big um, glory moment was when I was able to discharge a patient because they were no longer a homebound patient because they were actually living a good quality of life. Yeah. Oh, that's, it's, I, I would love to talk to you some more about this because exactly what you mentioned about the blood pressure and that sort of thing has happened with my father, we've, he's completely off of the benzodiazepines. He's completely off of antipsychotics. And we had an incident where we had to call, um, where we had to call uh, paramedics because his blood pressure had dropped so low. The only medicine, the only pharmaceutical medicine that he is still on right now is blood pressure medicine because he suffers from low blood pressure. And you have just sparked, um, a very interesting problem because he's now on cannabis instead of all of these other pharmaceutical drugs that he had been prescribed. And in fact, um, all of them, not just the benzos and the antipsychotics, but every other medicine, he had a, a medicine chest full of medicines. And the only one he's taking now is his blood pressure medicine. And um, they actually recommended cutting the dose in half um, since that incident. But now I'm listening to you thinking, wow, we need to uh, address this further because maybe he doesn't yeah. need it anymore. He probably, and, and I would definitely discuss it with his doctor, but, um, you know, the, the research is there that um, cannabis is a vasodilator. And so when you think in the form of like a water hose, if, if, it's, um, if it's constricted, then it's a smaller area for the for the water to get through. And so the pressure is going to be higher, right? Because you have to push right. harder to get it through that smaller hole. With cannabis, it's actually a vasodilator, which means it makes that hose bigger and allows for easier flow of blood. But at the same time, the pressure then goes down. So if you have right. a pharmaceutical that's creating that vasodilation and then you add on to that, you know, cannabis, 
you are going to see that you need to make a choice there on that. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Before we get going, because um, we're about time to wrap up here. Um, oh, no. I wanted, I, wanted to, I know we could go forever, <laughs> couldn't we? <laughs> this is so exciting. But um, you and I are going to be talking again, and Nurse Julesy, and I'm very excited to have both of you um, on the line together. But before we wrap this one up today, I, I was <laughs> just in awe of your experience um, recently, because as I mentioned in the opening, crossing state lines is a major problem for patients. Tell me what happened. <laughs> I wish Kenny was here to tell you. Um... So I, I am a patient in California. Arizona does have reciprocity, which means I can, I can have my medicine on me with a California card, but I cannot go into a dispensary here and purchase it. So how do I get it, right? Um, so I did bring a small quantity, much less than the 2.5 ounces that I'm allotted, but just enough for a couple days to get through because um, I am a patient. And we were stopped at the Yuma checkpoint uh, a dog had alerted and so we were pulled over to secondary and they did search our car and they did find my my medicine and they took my medicine um, but we didn't go down quietly um, we didn't fight but we definitely did stand up for ourselves and this is a real issue because I can't come to Arizona and if I don't have my medicine and not a way to, to get it. I mean, if it was any other medicine for any other person, it would be fine to go through. They could have fentanyl patches galore, but if I have a THC patch, there's going to be an issue. And so, yes, they shook us down. And uh, But Kenny really gave them a first-class education in cannabis law and made a very huge impact. It was interesting because I got a little nervous and I, I said, I'm just going to put this on Facebook Live so that I'm I, I, if something goes down here, we capture it, and so it is on. It is out there in the webosphere, uh, the video that was about an hour long, so people can go and watch it for themselves. <laughs> but it, it's just—it's really heartbreaking that this is in this modern day and age that we're having to deal, you know, with as much as we know, and it's—it's uh, it's very frustrating for those of us who really. Um, understand the importance of cannabis in human health and you know just to have to go through an experience like that I mean I'm sure it was eye-opening but at the same time it's it's a bit scary you know and it's it was hellaciously it was hellaciously horrific it was very scary and I, I'm actually a patient because I, I am a PTSD sufferer it's close to it's, it's close to home I keep myself on a, a regular balance and I stay you know, homeostatic and try to reduce my stress. But when something like this happens, um, it, it triggers, it triggers PTSD symptoms and episodes and yeah. it doesn't just go away. So even today, as I, I, I'm not feeling that great today, and I know that we have a job to do here to fight for PTSD patients and that discrimination piece to have it removed. And then I will promptly be going home to California where I can start my regimen of creating that balanced space so that I can begin to heal. Because when someone's triggered, it does take a little while because all those chemicals are going haywire and, and you've got to get that back into balance. Um, it's just part of the, part of the bag, but um, 
it's something that patients should never have to go through and be fearful of. And, and so I'm grateful that I had the wherewithal to put it on Facebook Live so that others could see that. It, it's had a great response. And uh, I know some work needs to be done in this area. I just don't know how to take it on quite yet. We'll have to cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah, well, I tell you what, it, um, I'm sure that there are so many people out there who share my sentiment that, of gratitude for you for, for doing this because patients do need an advocate who is very vocal out there in the community, especially in this new political climate too. There seems to be um, a lot of opposition to cannabis and, and cannabis law reform and all that coming into the new administration, and I think it's gonna it's gonna be a little more challenging before it gets much better. I'm afraid, but I can't go there, Snowden. I my glasses always half full, and I see I, I look through rose colored glasses, and um, yeah, I know well, that we, we can, have some challenges ahead, but uh, we got to yeah. keep our heads up. <laughs> but it's it's more than just hoping for the best. I mean, it really is taking people with courage to go out there and speak on behalf of patients and you know, really let everyone know. I mean, there are a lot of people who are still skeptical because of the stigma or because of the law or for whatever reason. And, you know, that's the one of the reasons that we're, we're doing this and trying to be very vocal about it, but in a way that um, people who are skeptical can begin to truly understand the importance of it. So thank you for that. I mean, it's... Uh, it's really important work that you're doing and you know we plan to do everything that we can to support cannabis nurses association and and to support your work and you have an amazing publication uh, called cannabis nurses magazine that we're planning to you know fully promote with you and we've got uh, links to it on our website so I will put a link to the work that you're doing within the body of this episode so that people can learn more about you, learn more about the work that you're doing. I will definitely update everyone on what happens with the appellate court hearing today. And, you know, really thank you so much, Nurse Heather. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I, I appreciate you giving me this time um, to be here and to share some of these things that rattle around in my head. And I feel like we need to get out you're, you're reaching people, and I thank you for that. And we are all doing our part in our small world. We wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other, and these small actions are making big differences. So thank you for all that you're doing as well. Oh, thank you so much. On that note, um, it's time for us to say goodbye until next week. And again, I want to personally thank our guests, Nurse Heather Manis and Ken Sobel for sharing their incredible knowledge and insights with us today. If you'd like to learn more about cannabis nurses or, or the veterans' work um, on PTSD, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. And we will have all of the information up there on our website. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He'll be back again next week. And thank you a million times over to our producers at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And of course, to today's sponsor, Hemp Meds. Thank you to all of you for listening. 
Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always.